1: Hello, welcome to the podcast. Our guest this week is the philosopher Bernard-Henri Lévy, one of France's most internationally renowned and outspoken public intellectuals. BHL, as he's often known, came to fame as a leader of the New Philosopher's Movement in the 70s, and today is just as recognised for his activism and social commentary as he is for his work within the Academy. A few weeks back, he joined Hannah McInnes live on stage in London to tell us about The Will to See, a collection of his international reportage from humanitarian crisis zones.
2: Tell us about the title of the book. Um, I'm intrigued, and I've I've obviously, of course, read it, but still intrigued, the title, The Will to See, of course, dispatches from a world of misery and hope. But but why did you choose to call it The Will to See?
3: Because it is not um, evident for a philosopher to to be concerned by seeing. A philosopher's uh, works with ideas, with concepts, with theories. He has a tendency to consider ideas as proceeding from other ideas and having other ideas as consequences. Since always, since my first steps on intellectual stage, I had also the desire, the appetite... And the will to go on the ground, to go on the to the most difficult sometimes and desperate places to see what happens. I have this will in me, and it was not evident at the end of the day. If I think really about your question, when I was um, a young man, I was shaped by. Um, a school of philosophy, the structuralism, the French theory, as it is called sometimes today, who considered that to see was not important. When I really think thoroughly, it was probably the most abstract moment of the history of continental philosophy. Ideas were the most important. Uh, things were secondary. And I think that since my beginnings, I resisted against this idea. And I knew that by seeing, by going, by watching, by transforming yourself into a witness, by going at the contact of the utmost misery, suffering, or hope, gives you a knowledge, a sense, and a quality of knowledge, that no doctrine and no philosophy can provide. So I am really inhabited by this, by this idea, the will to be a witness.
2: You say that that drive also came from what you called the archeology span of a reflex. And you said you wouldn't have done any of that if you had not had this burning within you, this feeling, this point of light, this intimate and transcendental conscience, this reflex. And I wonder if you could explain what that was as well as this reflex against the philosophers and the idea of ideas.
3: Yes, it's, it's something uh, simple, but in many of us, and sometimes in myself, it is buried under our habits, buried under our style of life, buried under our comfort. I live myself a good life in the West, in France, in New York, when I'm in New York. I have a good life. I have a great family, I have great children, I have great friends. I'm privileged. But what I call a reflex means that, in spite of all of that, when I hear about a massacre in Nigeria, when I hear about evisceration of uh, women in uh, Syrian Kurdistan by the proxies of Erdogan, when I hear about the misery of the refugees in Lesbos, an old feeling Buried in myself, buried far away in myself, under what I just said, wakes up and just tells me that there is here something intolerable, unsufferable, And the reflex means that, I take an example, one day in New York, one year and a half, two years ago, I received a visit of a gentleman from Nigeria a Christian from Nigeria. He told me about the massacre that was going on, massacre of Christians because they are Christians in Nigeria. He did show me some photos of those massacres. He told me his, uh, uh, how he couldn't believe that the world was so indifferent to this martyrdom. And suddenly, when this man, this great gentleman, member of a Nigerian NGO, left me, I was really overwhelmed by this reflex of guilt, shame, shame for my country, of guiltiness for myself, what I'm doing here, going back to the best hotel in the, in the city, having a great uh, evening, so shame, guiltiness will to see and will to do, and I was really restless. I could not have rest till I organized a trip to Nigeria. I made it possible to go there, to spend time, to see the graves, to see the wounded, to see the women who had been martyred, to collect their narration, their tales of suffering, and to bring all that back to Europe. And for me, it was beyond any reason. The reason was not to go, of course. My relatives, the people close to me, told me, "What are you crazy? Nobody went there. Nigeria means Boko Haram. If it was not Boko Haram, it was the affiliate of Boko Haram called the Fulani Militias. It was not without risk. There was no journalist in Nigeria. Nobody, or nearly nobody, covered the situation, so I had all the necessary reasons not to go, not to see. The reason ordered me not to see. And the reflex was that I could not sleep, I could not have a normal life, seriously. Till the moment I convinced a magazine, Paris Match, a newspaper in America, the Wall Street Journal, a few other European newspapers to send me there. And I went, spent some time. I brought back the story, I came back probably even more guilty, even more sad, with even more difficulty to adapt myself to my normal life, but with the feeling of having fulfilled a sort of duty.
2: I mean, I was going to sort of come to that extraordinary essay of, of Nigeria, but now we're talking about it. What well, you say there... Will we let history repeat itself in Nigeria? Shall we wait, as usual, for the disaster to be done before waking up? And you are keen to point out that what you're doing is reporting, and it's not journalism, because you hope that that reporting will change things, that there's an intervention, that there's an action that comes out of it. But, for example, with Nigeria, how is it possible, because it is so easy for us all to feel helpless in the face of those atrocities?
3: General question, you are right. As I said before, I have the will to see and the will to do And I'm not a journalist in this sense. I don't have the cult of objectivity. The ideology of journalism um, supposes that the observer has no effect on the situation he observes. I wish the contrary. I wish that as an observer, my observation will have an effect on the situation which I describe. So I have the will to do. I have the will that the fact of being there, of coming back from Nigeria, for example, will have an effect on the reality. This is my other obsession, and I would never make a reportage. I would not go to to Kurdistan, I would not go to Gaza during the war with Israel. If I was not inhabited by the idea that I'm not only a journalist, I'm also an activist, and I want to change the world as I said when I was a a very young man. In the situation of Nigeria, you ask me, yes, you are right. Did I change anything? How can I change uh, something? For the moment, this uh, story about Nigeria was published, and it is collected and developed in this book. The change was small, and I was, I might say that I was disappointed, though... It was not zero. My witness, my testimony was uh, published all over the world. It was transformed Nigeria into a film, which was seen for the moment in my in my home country. Very soon in the United States, I hope, and I know that a reasonable number of people in France, uh, probably one million and a half, saw that. Some of them were moved to tears by the faces and the bodies martyrized whom they saw. I know that a few weeks after uh, the publication of my first story in the Wall Street Journal, a delegation of the martyrized Christians were received at the White House. What is the connection between the two? I don't know. But I think that I contributed a little to put on the map the question of the massacre of the Christians in Nigeria because they were Christians, but it is not enough. I want more, and I will. I will fulfil. I will achieve more. I have the ambition. You ask me a precise question. I reply very uh, honestly and precisely. I have the ambition to put the question of the Christians in Nigeria on the table of the the General Assembly of the United uh, United Nations, for example. I have this project. I will go in the following days uh, in Washington, D.C., and I have the intention to work on that. The book exists. There is a film which exists, which will be seen by some people, and my aim, my target, is to provoke that, to have the General Assembly hearing... From anyone. If there is no other solution, I will do it myself. Ten years ago, I addressed the General Assembly of the UN in New York about the question of anti Semitism. I was invited by the General Assembly, it was in 2012, I think, or 13, to address the question of the rise and the state of affairs of anti Semitism in the world. I did that. I was happy to do it, if I dare say. I would do the same if I was asked, and I will do all that is possible for someone to be asked about the Christians in Nigeria. Because this idea of uh, Christian people treated this way, cut into pieces, this idea of a possible new Rwanda, that a possible genocide happens in the indifference of the world, for me, is insufferable. And as you said, Hannah, there is a very famous quote in philosophy, a quote of Hegel. Hegel says that the philosophy is like the owl, the chouette, the owl, O-W-L, who wakes up, the owl wakes up and begins to fly when the night comes. La chouette de Minerve, the owl of Minerva, wakes up when the night falls. This is the conception of the philosophy according to Hegel, and this is what most of us do. We wait for the night having fallen, which, which means we wait for the massacres to have happened. We wait for the battlefield to be full of blood and then philosophy comes and the uh, intellectuals arrive and they draw lessons from what happened. I dream of a philosophy that does the reverse. I dream of a philosophy able to intervene before the fall of the night. Who is able to enter to intervene at dawn, or at least at midday, or at least in the afternoon before the game is over? And Nigeria is a good example. I I don't want to wait for the night having fallen for the, the the darkness to be total before seeing foreseeing for the world taking care. I want the world to take care before, and I will do all that I can. I did a little. I hope I will do more in the next month. You are a witness. I did give you my intention. You will see.
2: We will be checking up. Okay. <laughs> but you, you say, um, as you said, there's this idea of everybody waking up too late. And you say many times in the book, and you've said before, that there's, you feel that, um, you're going against what you describe as the fierce indifference of my fellow Westerners. And, of course, a pandemic, a recent pandemic, in which, your words, the world locked itself down and turned within. Is your sense that the pandemic has really made this worse, this indifference, that it's exacerbated it, that it's, that it's intensified it, or were we ever thus? You...
3: I think so, yes. I think it, uh, it makes things worse. We were told during the pandemic, um, we were taught to show more solidarity, we were taught to care about uh, our neighbours, but I fear that the reality was not that that the, what we called in French the confinement, I, here in, in, in English you say lockdown, but confinement, what the world in, uh, in France, in Italy, meant what it says, which means uh, everyone enclosing himself inside his fortress, closing windows and doors, and um, deciding to ask to and deciding to care less about the others. And during this, this book, I wrote it during the, the pandemic. I wrote it from January 2020 to December 2020, last year. I lived all these crazy and extraordinary adventures and journeys during the pandemic. And I did that partly as a challenge because when I saw the news in my country, but I think it was the same in, uh, in UK, It was all over the pandemic, all over the virus, all over disputes between doctors about uh, the mask, uh, the social distance, uh, etc. And it was as if the whole world had disappeared. I knew that in the meantime, Erdogan, the Turks, the, the new Ottomans were proceeding I knew that uh, the Putin uh, people were uh, proceeding in Ukraine and stealing more of Ukraine territory. I knew that in this big silence of the world, the massacres against Christians in Algeria were increasing. I knew all that, but it was out of the news. It did not exist. It was as if the planet had stopped to, to turn around and... For me, again, a reflex, I, I thought that it was this was unsufferable, that this new egoism disguised into solidarity, this new way of being ordered to be close to the other by being alone with oneself seemed to me a huge hypocrisy. And uh, I, I decided to bear witness for that, which does not mean that i was uh, minimizing the virus it was a tragedy of course it was necessary to take care it was probably good to wear masks and i'm not a doctor i cannot say but it was so important not to take advantage of the pandemic situation in order to cut the last ropes the last threads which connected us with the rest of the world and with the most miserable part of the world. It was too much a good excuse during this time. Even the magazine for which I was working, Paris Match, during one year, there was a few other probably, but so little reportage, except mine. So little. It, it, Paris Match is a French magazine, which is very expert in reportage. There was no longer The travels were cut. It was impossible to travel during this year. Impossible to take a plane. Impossible to to leave Paris. I did it. I made uh, made it possible. But for me, it was a duty not to lose this sense of uh, of cosmopolitanism, of internationalism, of going to the most remote places to continue to care about uh, those who whose fate is apparently indifferent to the rest of the world.
2: So you don't think that that sense of locking down was, you know, it wasn't a selfish thing, it was to protect others in a sense. And and there was a sense, that people would say, of community in the past year. People might come back to you to say, because this was a virus that didn't see borders, that affected everybody across the world in the same way.
3: I think that there was a part of hypocrisy in all this um, discourse. And... um, I think that people, uh, myself maybe, uh, cared uh, much about themselves and not so much about uh, about the others. And the fact that we became, again, deaf and blind during these two years to the fate of the rest of the world means that we were deaf and blind.
2: The other thing you say, you talked about we could not travel because of the pandemic, but I was very interested to read in the book your idea that you feel there is a war on travel, quite aside from the pandemic. Um, and You, you say in quite strong terms, that you're determined to defy those intoning the war on air travel and the return of each or his, his or her to her niche. You defy those ego- egoists and reactionaries who see the voyager as selfish and smug. And this is the idea of kind of obviously getting on a plane and being against the health of the planet. But you think that, that you don't have sympathy with that sentiment?
3: I think that there is a balance which has to be found. I, I, I know that I am as concerned as... Uh as everyone and as concerned as the most uh, radical of the ecologists about the fate of the planet and the carbon emissions and so on and so on. But I think that a world without travel, a world when uh, where everyone will remain inside his borders, will be worse than the world of today. There is a nobility of travel, there is a greatness of travel, Uh, For each of us, there is an experience of travel, which is an experience of transforming ourselves into another. There is a discomfort, a moral discomfort in travel, which is impossible to be replaced. And a humanity which will be ordered to stay home, which will be forbidden to, to move from country to country, would be very close to the humanity described by Alexander Kojev in his picture of the end of history, when he said that we could end history by being, all of us, like animals. Each one in his hole, each one in his little niche, like, uh, like an animal. So, we have to find, and I'm confident that the science, probably, the... The research will find ways of traveling, ways of uh, uh, making planes work with consuming less fuel and so on, of course. But this new trend, considering those who travel as uh, criminals against planet, therefore criminals against uh, their fellow humans, I think is a very bad trend. And there is a nobility in the fact of considering ourselves as citizens of the world, as brothers in spirit, soul and body with anyone in the rest of the world, which would be lost if was to win this sort of curse spell uh, cast on the on the very idea of uh, of travel.
2: So that is one of the reasons that you fear, perhaps, as you say, that the art of reporting that means so much to you and that is so important to bring these stories home, you you fear that that is set to disappear. Why do you think that we're at risk of not having these stories being told?
3: Because uh, it is sometimes difficult. There are some... uh... To go, for example, there is one of the stories in this book, which is um, a journey in Somalia, in, in Mogadishu. Yeah. I think that my, my team and myself were among the very, very, very few since te- 2015 years to go to Mogadishu. Because it is difficult, because you need time, because you need patience. I have all that. I have some patience. I have time. My life is organized in a way, offering that. So I take advantage of it without guiltiness. It needs uh, agility to, to find a way. So it is difficult, number one. And number two, people don't care. There is uh, the, the world in which we are living seems to me more and more egotist, narcissistic. I remember when I was a young man, uh, younger than I am, let's say, in the 60s, 70s, my generation said a lot of stupid things. The radicalism of this time had very bad outcomes, but at least, at least, there was this immediate, intimate concern with the rest of the world. In this time, the fate of a a Chinese uh, youngster, uh, the fate of a miserable Bangladeshi concerned us as if it were our neighbor. There is a sentence which which was famously quoted by a French modern fascist called Jean-Marie Le Pen, who said, I'm sorry, but I feel closer to my daughter than to my niece, to my niece uh, than to my neighbor, and to my neighbor closer than to the foreigner. In my generation, in the 70s, this sentence was inconceivable. (laughs) This distinction did not operate. It was just stupid, crazy to believe that we had reasonable motives to be closer to our cousin than to our neighbor. This did not exist. It seems hard to imagine today. It seemed hard. So we live in a world where the sentence of Jean-Marie Le Pen is evident for a part of uh, ourselves. Even me, a part of my brain thinks that the sentence of Jean-Marie Le Pen is not completely stupid. But thanks God, I have still another part of my brain who just believe that this is stupid and that I was right when I was 22 years old, when I saw uh, images of Bangladesh and of uh, something that looked like a genocide, to take a plane, to take my bag and to go there and to remain there for a for month. I was right and I do it still. And by the way, in this book, this is for me. I don't know for you, of course, for the uh, uh, a reader, but for me, it's the most moving part of this book, the part of the book where I put most of my emotion. I go back to Bangladesh 50 years after. 50 years ago, as a very young boy, I was a child nearly, I was 21, 22. There was a famous appeal launched by a famous old writer called André Malraux, who by reflex, said the news I see on TV as unbearable, unsufferable. He said this old André Malraux, when I was young, I organized, I was part, I was member of the international brigades in Spain. I want to do the same in Bangladesh. I heard this appeal and I replied to it. And I went there. This was 50 years ago. Today, half a century after that, for the first time, I went back to this poor miserable and glorious Bangladesh and I was received there all that is in the book I was received by little crowds of former young boys who became maybe like me old men with um, flags at the airport the few airports when I went uh, uh, greeting me uh, a good comeback welcome back veteran Bernard Henri Lévy for me I don't know, it was the best reward I could have. And it was this return to Bangladesh, these old veterans, on the face of whom I recognized the young boys they were 50 years ago, greeting me, moved to tears for some of them, less than myself, Uh, by this moment, it was the best uh, reward I could imagine for, for my life. So, for me, I live in this world. The world where I care, I am concerned, and I am shocked by the wall of iron of indifference of the world. I am shocked by the new narcissism, which is fueled and fed by the social networks, by Facebook and Instagram and blah, blah, blah. I'm shocked by that. I hate it. I don't like this world. I don't like I want to bear witness against it and to try to say to those who listen to me that Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: I'm interested you bring up a Facebook and the world of social media, because in a sense, on the positive side, that is surely a way to tell some of these stories um, that, that weren't being told. Of course.
3: Uh, that's the way I, I myself try to, uh, to use them. I am on uh, Facebook, I am on Twitter, I am on Instagram, and I use them as um, as tools, they can be the worst, and they can be the best. And I try to transform it, to transform them into the, into in, into the best. Yes, uh, I'm sure of that. I I published on Instagram probably the first images of the the Rohingya Rohingya refugees from Burma to Bangladesh. I think there was not so much. I'm proud to have put them on social media. I am proud to have put on social media images of brave female fighters of syrian kurdistan fighting isis on one's front and erdogan on the other front yes social media can be used this way i use them, them this way i try not to be too narcissistic sometimes i am also of course but I find not too much.
2: I mean, you, you speak of Bangladesh, and there's, there's so much there in, in this story. People will read about it in the essay. But when you visit Bangladesh, you then describe the camps there. And You say there can be no good camps, of course. But compared to the camp that you visit in Greece, the camps in Bangladesh are a huge improvement. And I wonder if you could tell us about the atrocities that you found in Lesbos and why you feel that the solution to that is to get rid of those camps bulldoze
3: them down you say lesbos yes is a refugee camp in Greece uh, in uh, in the most be- one of the most beautiful island of Greece lesbos famous since antiquity which has been turned into a hell hell on earth is lesbos today and again when I went there in uh, I went twice in March and in May 2020 honestly there was not a lot of people no journalists and the few journalists who tried the some fascist groups of uh, golden down confiscated took their cameras and threw them in the sea Uh, there was a few humanitarians but very little because of covid Uh, and i can understand that also but i tried to break this uh, blocus of fear and of uh, confinement and i went there and i found three things Hell, shame for us, and dignity and hope of the victims. This is the situation I found. Shame for the fatherland of Victor Hugo, of uh, Dante, of John Locke, to accept to have at its borders, at the edge of Europe and at the heart of Europe, not this hell, shame on us. I, was, I felt shame because I did not, I was never there for the first time. I, I saw, I had seen images, but the will to see. When you see things, it makes a difference. So for me, it was a, it was a shame. And again, I, I hesitated if it was the edge of the heart of Europe, but it was the heart because uh, these refugees at the end of the day arriving from uh, Turkey, from Syria, uh, through Turkey, and arriving Lesbos, they made the accurate and nearly precise itinerary Of the famous princess europe in the greek mythology who invents invents the idea of europe so these refugees they were thousands tens of thousands of embodiments of the princess europe of the mythology who did exactly the same road coming from lebanon crossing the same sea and arriving maybe not in lesbos but very close so for me this idea of uh, europe peopled by little princess Europe's turned into these uh, human wrecks. Wreck was absolutely the image of indignity. But in them, I was, as nearly everywhere in these journeys, I was struck by the, the dignity, the pride, the integrity that remained. In these martyrized souls and bodies, true in Lesbos and true in the refugee camps of Bangladesh. And what struck me in Bangladesh, as you may know, in Bangladesh you have one million of refugees who fled from Burma, Muslim refugees. This time they are Muslim. They fled Burma. They fled. They were pushed from Burma and they arrived in Bangladesh. They are the most miserable possible human being on earth, these Rohingya refugees. And they take refuge in one of the countries the poorest in the world, and the most miserable also. So miserable people having shelter in a miserable country, you might expect to have egoist reactions. You might expect those who give shelter to say we don't have enough place for ourselves, for our daughters, cousins, neighbors, how could we receive and host people? opposite. The welcome, the hospitality was so great, so moving, and in a sense, more uh, warmer than the hospitality which we Europeans give to the migrants, that it was, for me, as a European, a lesson of dignity. And I hope that in this chapter of the book, I transmit, I achieve to transmit part of this lesson. How sometimes the most miserable victims can give us, the happy of the world, whom we are, a lesson of dignity, of eminent dignity. This is what I found often in my life.
2: And that is the reason why you say, as a solution, of course tell the story and do what we can, but the reason you say this camp in Lesbos that you find should be bulldozed to the ground is the shame that we aren't welcoming these people into our countries, that they have to be there in the first place.
3: Yes, and this for me is a failure, because as I confessed to you at the beginning of this conversation, I had the will to do, and there is very few of my reportages who did not give little fruits. When I was in Bosnia 25 years ago, I was obsessed by the idea of convincing uh, John Major, Margaret Thatcher, John Major, François Mitterrand to uh, stop the Serbs uh, the, the, uh, in Sarajevo. When I was in Darfur, I was obsessed at the idea of uh, international community paying attention to the genocide. Nigeria, Etc, etc. Lesbos, I came back with a very simple idea. In Lesbos, which was a camp made for, uh, shaped for 3,000 refugees, I think, there were 20,000. 20,000 in a camp made for 3,000. You can imagine the situation. So I came back with a very simple plan, who was to take these 20,000 people, who because of stupid regulation in Europe, the Dublin rule, That you have to ask uh, asylum in the place where you disembark. I wanted these 20,000 people to be shared in the 27 countries of Europe, proportionally to their population. Maybe, uh, I don't know, 1,000 in Germany and maybe 200 or 100 in Hungary. I had made the calculation and I went to a few of the European leaders whom I know. I went to them, I wrote to them, I made efforts, and I failed. And egoism prevailed. Uh, stupidity won. Bureaucracy in Europe, the, the will not to offend Hungary and Poland were stronger. That is very simple idea of saving 20,000 people from hell and to add them to the numerous migrants who come anyway in Europe, and thanks God, without migrants, as you know, probably there is a big part of the economy of our nation, which will stop to work. I failed to convince the leaders of Europe to host these poor 20,000 people who had taken all the risks, who had left everything they had behind, who were very often talented people. Because I... I spent time, I spoke with them. They were miserable because they were deprived of anything, but not miserable in mind. They were doctors, they were engineers, they were coming from some very civilized cities of Syria. We closed our doors and closed our hearts. And this for me is a sorrow and a failure.
2: I'm very shortly going to be asking you for your questions and I'm sure you've got many and I think we've got hopefully questions coming in from all those people watching online but I'm sure people will be interested to hear your thoughts on Afghanistan. You went there um, for the essay you write in the book in September 2020. You know the place very well. You were special envoy there I think in 2002. And I just wonder when you were there in 2020 your conversations were about they were preparing for peace talks with the Taliban. Did you have any hope or any faith that those would be successful or that they might? No.
3: I I think that uh, there is a rule. With the British Noel, you don't discuss with fascists. You don't uh, enter into blackmail. You don't accept to negotiate with um, barbarians. You you don't. And the choice done by the Trump Trump administration to engage discussions with the Taliban without any precondition was a big mistake. It was a discredit. Uh, cast on the authority of Afghanistan. It was an act of despise against all the women in Afghanistan who already liberated themselves since uh, 20 years. It was a slap on the face of all those who believed in Afghanistan in democracy. It was the beginning of the catastrophe. These peace conversations were uh, were a joke, were a farce, a comedy, terrible. And uh, I hoped that the new american administration would do for this what they did on many other files which is to to change policy at the end of the day biden has been elected because a majority of americans believe that trump was not fit for office alas and for reasons which uh, which are hard to understand for me the new president joe joe biden endorsed the decision of trump accepted and speeded accelerated The decision to to step out, to betray our um, Afghan sisters and brothers, to discourage and to send to hell again those who believed in us, who believed in our protection, and without any reasons. Because I don't know if we are not going to enter in a big discussion on Afghanistan, but you heard, like me, the reason of living, which is we are fed up with endless wars. This was the argument of Trump, argument of uh, Biden. Fed up with endless war and especially with the endless wars fail. Number one, in Afghanistan, we did not fail. We did not fail. If I compare Afghanistan in 2001, two, 2001 and 2002, when I was special envoy of my president to the com- Afghanistan of now, it is night and day. Women go went a few months ago, a few weeks ago, went in the street without burqa. Journalists had learned how to do their job. A real civil society in many parts of Afghanistan, at least in the cities, had taken place, had, had uh, taken birth, I'm sorry, civil society. When a woman uh, had um, dared, to look at a man who was not her husband, she was not death stoned uh, in the last years. This was a real change. Afghanistan, a few weeks ago, was still Afghanistan with a great ancestral culture. But some human rights had implemented themselves and had um, uh, matched with the old Afghan culture, and this was great, this was an achievement, this was not a failure, number one. And number two, it was not a war. The international force dominated by America till uh, last um, two months ago was there. There was 2,500 troops, they were there as they are in uh, 50 countries in the world. They spent much more time in uh, South Korea, in Europe, in Germany, and so on. So it was a military, political, diplomatic presence under the flag of a respected country, United States of America, under the banner and, the, and the, the, of the United Nations, which was enough to put into distance to discourage the Taliban fascists. This was not a bad deal. It did not cost so much. And it did cost much less than the current situation will cost the European and American democracies in terms of uh, Islamic activism, in terms of emboldenment, encouragement to extremism, in terms of, uh, I don't dare to say, maybe even worse. We'll see. The cost was not high compared to the cost which can be the cost of uh, leaving the Talibans on control of an Islamic caliphate and of a terrorist state with some ISIS and Al-Qaeda camps reorganized in the Afghan mountains. This could cost a lot to the Western democracies, much more than the 3,000 or 2,500 troops in their barracks in a non-war mission since a few years, which were there until this terrible night of August 15th.
2: It's fascinating, and we could probably talk about Afghanistan for another hour, but I'm going to let the questions uh, from the audience come in now, and I've got some I'm not rudely checking my messages. I've got some from the audience at home um, to read too. So if you have a question um, in the audience here, yeah, perfect. We'll start with, and I'll just, thank you.
4: Hi, Um, thanks for uh, your presence this evening. I was wondering, um, you mentioned that lockdown had made us very individualist and uh, uh, more numb to uh, some of the woes and uh, tragedies around the world. But I wondered if there was a a contradictory point of view, which was that to some extent, like, for example, the Black Lives Matter movement, there was actually a sense of heightened concern, almost incubated maybe by the fact that we'd been somehow more sensitized because we've been sort of uh, resensitized to the world by being um, more incubated. And I wondered if there was maybe a different point of view there that actually with the sufficient media coverage, that people are actually uh, a little bit more sensitive to global tragedies and so maybe it's more dependent on the coverage, media coverage, rather than lockdown in and of itself.
3: Black Lives Matter is an example, yes, uh, you, you are right, yes. Black Lives Matter uh, started much before, started 10 years ago and uh, they were not reduced to silence uh, by the lockdown. This is uh, uh, This is true, yes, of course, of course. It is not. Um, thanks God, it was not a complete uh, shutdown of our brains and uh, and consciousness. There were still some areas of uh, of concern. Yes, yeah. it is an example, but there are a few. For the rest of uh, of the world, really, make the experience of looking on the internet as uh, at um, a copy of uh, Le Monde or the Times, any date. At the peak of the pandemic, you will see the coverage of uh, pandemic of the pandemic on one side and of the rest of the world on the other side. And you will see how many big events appeared without uh, us take, paying attention to them and being uh, informed about them. Just make the experience. I did it in a previous book. I took one day, I recollected uh, what was really happening uh, in Syria, in, uh, in Libya, in uh, wherever, you know, on the, in, in Crimea. That, and the fact that it was unnoticed because the whole space of uh, available consciousness was occupied by our obsessive and obsessively nurtured and uh, fed by uh, the, the media about the pandemic. It occupied the whole space with exceptions, and you are, you are right to mention this one.
2: Does that, does that answer your question? Because I think also, um, just to pick up on what she was saying, which is a very interesting... Is that it was, therefore, the media? Is that what you were saying? Rather than just this sense that we were being locked down and, and contained, it's the media's choice what to talk about. And they chose to talk about Black Lives Matter, so we were all very much aware of that. But what you're talking about, it's, it's their responsibility to draw attention to.
3: Of course it is a responsibility, but... Uh, it's a completed uh, dialectic. The, the media uh, don't speak of something if they suppose that we will uh, we will zap and we will turn the button and go to the other chain. It's a it's a completed game. Mm-hmm. I can tell you from my little experience. Each time I'm not a reporter. I am a philosopher and a writer. And the little credit I I have at the end of the day, I got it from. Uh, Bestseller novels, by uh, books of philosophy, which uh, succeeded well. Each time I was hired by a newspaper to make some rem- uh, remote stories, some reportage, the condition I made, the only condition, when I was approached by Le Monde, when I, appro- when I was approached by the New York Times Magazine, when, I'm appro- when I was approached by Paris Match, the only condition I made is, was the following I want to go in places which you usually don't cover. I want to use the little credit I have, the little curiosity which I can uh, provoke on my name. I want to use that in order to help people to care about subjects which they generally don't care. It was always my rule. Twenty years ago, when I, I was hired by Le Monde, uh, and by the Financial Times to to make some reportage uh, to renode with the old tradition of the writers uh, being also reporters and so on. I said okay, but I'm not going to go in the places where you your reporters go and do a great job. By the way, I said by only the only condition I put, I accept to go. But let's find the five, six, seven stories, dramas, tragedies, which exist at this moment when we are speaking in the beautiful restaurant in Paris, and which you, you Le Monde, did not cover. And I remember, I, I tell the story in the book, I remember the director of Le Monde telling me, how can you say that? We are Le Monde, there is no tragedy in the world which we don't cover, we cover everything. I said, okay, let's make a bet. Give me two days. And uh, if I come back with a tragic situation, where people die by hundreds of millions and which are unnoticed in your columns which go under the radar of big le monde please let me do that don't deal it did not take me two days it took me a few hours to find out that there was at this time six big stories which had not been related by le monde who is a great newspaper by the way and which I wanted to cover, and I did it. I went there. And uh, there are a few of them, which I was at this time the the first one to to do. What what I mean is that there is a system of um, dialectic between the audience and the media. The media do their best to cover things which are not completely weighted by the readers or by the watchers. But the watchers sometimes impose their rule and say, oh, come on, we, we, we unsubscribe. So this is the cat and mouse game between them. As for myself, as far as I will live and be in good, in good shape with the, the, the will to see, I will try to, to distract this dialectic, to unrule, to, to, to complicate this dialectic and to share my will to see with some who don't will to see, and to use my little credit in order to help this transmission of will.
0: Congratulate you on your travels, but it leaves me with an observation and a question. In the 1930s in Paris, there was a new salon run by two black women, Paulette Nadal and Jeanne Nadal, along with Amy Cesar and Leopold Senghor, who came up concept of negritude, negritude, black culture, the idea that there was centered around black culture. They were severely criticized by Sartre, who said, poetry never changed the world, painting never changed the world, writing never changed the world. The only thing that changes the world is politics. You have to get involved in politics. That's the observation. Looking around, when we talk about a million Rohingyas, a million Yugas, I read that there will be more Nigerians than Europeans in 2050. 150,000 people are on the borders of Mexico. Do you get the impression that in fact the world is sliding out of control? If you got your Christian thing onto the United Nations, would it make any difference?
3: I believe that um, in in every uh, woman and man, even the most... um, Indifferent, even the blindest of of us, there is a part of consciousness, a part of good, which can be awakened. And I am confident that if somebody with some authority, with some authority, goes to to the assembly of the nation, speaks in convincing terms of what is happening in Algeria shows images, screens a movie which is devoted to this uh, indignity, I'm confident that there is in every mind a little candle which will light, a little light which will uh, illuminate the ocean of uh, nothingness and of indifference. I'm optimist for that. I, I I, I sometimes am pessimist when I see the, the block of um, of wickedness which is often uh, around us but I know and I experienced that so many times that even the most um, cruel uh, leader in a democratic the most cynical leader in democratic countries, there is often a way often a way to reach him a way to wake up his emotions I have so many examples of that I remember uh, he was not cruel but he was a bit cynical. I remember, I remember François Mitterrand. Uh, I remember Margaret Thatcher, by the way. When I brought to her in 19... She was no longer in charge. But I asked her an appointment for the president of the, Bos, of the of Bosnia-Herzegovina, Alia Izetbegovic, 1993, in her house. She was, she was a tough cookie, Mrs. Thatcher. She was not an emotional uh, girl. She was a strong lady. And we spent one hour, one hour with the commander-in-chief and political leader of Sarajevo. During 50 minutes, 5-0, it, looks, it looked like a series of assaults of uh, the moral consciousness of the Bosniak guy in front of, an, uh, of a fortress. She did not move. She did not show any sign of emotion. And at the moment, after really 50 minutes, Aliyah Izetbegovic, the representative of the victims of Sarajevo, he said one word. He said one story of her family living in a cave in Sarajevo in the beginning of the siege and so on. And he, he, tell, he told her story. And I saw at this moment, I don't know why. I, I did not know her. I don't know what this precise story touched in her mind, what it did, how it entered into her heart. But I saw that something happened on the face of this lady. I heard what she promised to the gentleman he, she had in front of her, Isebegovic. And I know I what she did after. She was not in charge, but she, she did her job. So you never know. You never know. François Mitterrand, when I first came back from Sarajevo, I take historical examples, old examples, which are in history now. François Mitterrand, I came to him when I came back from my first t- journey under Sarajevo, uh, submerged by, by bombs. Same. Not, it, he was not impressed. I could not find a way. And suddenly, it was, I, I knew him well. And I understood what happened. I told him that the president of Sarajevo looked like Salvador Allende, the president of Chile, who was uh, toppled in the 60s by the fascist Pinochet. And this idea of Sarajevo, Chile, Izet Begovic, Salvador Allende, it rang a bell, (laughs) it ignited a spark. Something happened a few days after, François Mitterrand, one of the real cynical leaders of the west though very brilliant and uh, was on a plane and uh, uh, made a savage trip unexpected unannounced in sarajevo and broke the blocus of the city so you you never know the mind of uh, of each of us is completely unexpected we have in ourselves and the leaders of the world as as me as you has some secret workings, some access codes which you cannot guess. Sometimes you find it, and uh, something happens. I experienced that a lot of times. And to come back to the example of Nigeria, if I was in front of uh, of the leaders, of the representative of the world in the General Assembly of the UN, I think I would try my best. To, to find the access code, maybe I would fail. I will fail. Maybe something will happen. Rendezvous. You will you will learn. You will know.
2: I think on, on, there's a definitely a note of uh, hope in there, which is one that we're going to end on because we've come to the end of our of our time this evening. But there would be so many more things we could hear, of course. Thank you so much indeed for joining us, and thank you all very very much for being here. And at home, thank you very much for signing
0: in.
1: This week's podcast starred Bernard-Henri Lévy and was presented by Hannah McInnes. It was produced by Sam Elgranti, Esme Bright and myself and the editor was John Doughty. If you are in London and would like to join us for more on-stage events, visit howtoacademy.com and you'll find Philip Pullman, Emily Ratajkowski, Fee Garvey and Jane Glover, Louis Theroux, John Cleese, Ian McGilchrist and many more. I'm Vas Christodoulou.